You're listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast that features interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm your host, Mike Costa of Costa Media Advisors. My guest this week is Josh Manning. Josh is the trailblazer behind the growing retail chain, Snapdragon Hemp. Josh's path to being a leader in the hemp industry includes many different jobs, but they all tie into Josh's passion for sales. Josh, welcome to my morning cup. Before we talk about how you went from part-time high school jobs to an eBay store to the Army Reserve and now to hemp, let me ask, what's in your morning cup? Cost of coffee today. <laughs> oh, that's the best coffee there is. Well, we're glad you're here, Josh, and I'm sorry I screwed up the first two cups. <laughs> Great to be here, Mike. So I'm extremely interested in your career. Hemp's a growing industry, and you seem to be in the forefront of that, particularly in Chattanooga. But before we really get to what you're doing now, I want to talk about how you grew up, where you grew up, what some of your jobs were, because you've done a lot of things. We were talking earlier, you said you grew up in Montgomery, Alabama, but moved here in high school? Yeah, I moved here and started high school and uh, went to Chattanooga Central High School on High 58. Oh, yeah. What, the Panthers? The Pounders. The Pounders. Purple that's what it pounders. is. The Purple Pounders. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And in high school, you had a series of odd jobs. Yeah, for sure. Especially my senior year, I only had to go for half a semester or whatnot. Just, um, you know, graduated early type thing. Get done with high school at 11, 1130 or so and go work. So it was a... Uh, it gave me the opportunity to get pretty quick into the into the the working groups. The work mode. What were some of those jobs that you were doing? Uh, some of them were like Famous Days, Macaroni Grill, so restaurants on Gumbrell Road, and then I worked with um, AEED, the contractor at Unum Provident. Okay, but it was an inventory control specialist <laughs> in the high school, so that was a, a neat job. So just random all over the board. That's a big change from the restaurant industry. And a lot of times when someone starts out in the restaurant industry, they get that restaurant bug and stay in it. But it didn't stick for you, huh? No, I did enjoy the customer service aspect of it, just communicating with people every day. That was fun. But um, overall, it was definitely not what I was uh, wanting to do. You talk about your passion for sales. What were some of those sales opportunities as you were coming up through high school and then into college? So uh, locally, Cars, big passion for cars. I joined the Army to be a mechanic, but, you know, buying, selling, fixing or whatnot. So you're mechanically in common. Yeah, 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 for sure. I enjoy the how and the why things work. So how has repairing cars changed over like the last 10 to 20 years with so much of it's a, a software issue now, isn't it? So much of it. Uh, and I guess it was about probably 12 years or so ago, 2010 or 11, I started getting into the electronic aspect of the automotive uh, so I've got a laptop dedicated. I've got, I think, seven cords now. So every little uh, Volkswagen takes a cord, BMW takes a cord, some of the Chevys and Fords take a certain cord. What does that mean, takes a cord? So I, I plug it into OBD2, or I can plug it into just the actual computer itself, uh -huh. and then hardwire it to the laptop via USB, and then I can download the entire computer from the car and edit anything on it, change any parameters. Is that when your check engine light comes on and they connected to the computer and they say, oh, well, obviously it's your funculator. Yeah, I like that. But so it'll come on. So let's say like a, you know, O2 sensor comes on for a, a failure, whether it be a, a voltage issue or a reference issue. I can pull up the computer and see like input voltage, output voltage off from the computer. So it makes troubleshooting so much easier, but it's not just like pulling a code, reading a code. You can pull the information that's given and then determine because the codes sometimes are so generalized. They can throw people for the wrong direction or whatnot. How did you get into that? 
Were cars always part of your life? or? Well, it was always something that led to another. So like car audio stuff, really, I guess, was the first intro. Me and my buddies in high school, I'd put speakers and stereos and whatnot in their cars. And then as they started to break, I started to replace alternators, replace and take manifolds. And just as one thing led to another, eventually got into Mustangs and then uh, wasn't ever that like easy on them. So when you break stuff, you got to learn to fix it. So just one thing led to another. <laughs> Next thing you're swapping out transmissions and and then you're then you're doing long block swaps, you know. So that's a great rule of life. When you break something, you need to learn to fix it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, and that's really, I guess, the in the overall, like so much of what I've learned or how I've learned it just is because of the need to. And that's what led you to the Army Reserve to be a mechanic. Yeah, I kind of wanted to um, take the strides to you know help pay for college and give me a good start. I thought it was a cool opportunity, and it was great learning lessons. Being around uh, you know, mentors, I guess, I guess would be one of the better ways to look at it for sure. Now, was your eBay store before or after the Army Reserve? I've actually done eBay since high school, kind of on and off throughout the years. I've always sold or done what I've been passionate about, so car parts online. I did about four years or so just selling car parts, valve springs, camshafts, and then um, having the the idea of why and how something works. When somebody messages you, it's like you don't get a better customer service than that. So, right. so it took off really, really, really well. So, um, And I'm just curious, and I'm showing my age. How do you get into that? Well, at high school, how do you say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to source auto parts, <laughs> and I'm going I'm to sell them on eBay. Yeah. I mean, how does that come about? <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> I stumped you. <laughs> yeah, well, it's one of those where it's like uh, I had a need for it. I had people that would, hey, need parts or whatnot, and got distribution set up with people and got a little discount set up with them. The more you buy, the better the discount was. The more I sold, the better I could scale up, and it was just, you know, one thing led to another, and I'm just <laughs> I'm And you, you're in parts. high school at this time? The car part started uh, probably two years after high school graduation. Still, you're a young guy thinking, I mean. The online market is the competitive market. And that was one of the biggest things to learn at first because you can go, let's say I sold an item and it did really great. And then four months later, the sales go down and you look at eBay and there's somebody else that's selling it for a dollar less than you are. And then you're like, ah, man. So then you compete with them. Yeah. And then um, that was good learning lessons, learning it on a small scale basis rather than. I've seen countless people invest a lot of money into something and then it works great for four months and they're sitting on a stockpile where they haven't made their money yet. Because somebody will come into the market and say, I don't need to make any money on this for six months. I'll just get you out of the competition. And then six months later, they raise their prices to you know more than you had them for. So it's they're going after share. I'll yeah, take your share yeah. away. Mm-hmm. So the web selling is almost purely price based. Yes, it is. But the uh, same thing with the hemp as far as the wholesale. I started doing wholesale and selling to other places. But some of that inconsistencies and some of the competitive nature, that's really what led me into like, hey, I've got to do this on my own. I've got to yeah. be a name or be a brand or be a store or be a, you know, whatever. How did you get into the hemp and cannabis industry? Where was your interest? What spurred it on? And uh, you've taken it quite far, and we'll get to where you are today. But how did it all start? Um, Again, with the need for wanting to do something that I enjoyed. So I started to do extraction. Had some uh, friends of mine that grew after the 2014 CBD stuff. I got real popular, you know, legalized Mm -hmm. to grow and separated from the definition of marijuana. So 2014 was big for hemp. I had a, a couple of friends started to grow in 2014, 2015, and then 2016, I started doing extraction. So I was taking the CBD that they were growing, the flour, and then turning it into like an oil product. How'd you learn to do that? Uh, some of it was just on the internet, old school methods of, I started with a press, started with alcohol extraction, stuff like that. And then trial and error, uh, I went from play around with a couple ounces of extraction, making oil at the house to um, 
2019 was a big year. That was the first year that we got on with the Department of Ag for Tennessee to be like a mm-hmm. licensed manufacturing facility for extraction and stuff like that. By that point, like learn rotary evaporator. So you wash everything with alcohol, you put it under vacuum, you heat up the alcohol, you remove it, and you're left with, you know, your extract. Then learn distillation and just like learn every step along the way, just like nonstop learning and trial and error. You're a constant was. learner, aren't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Explain a little bit of the difference between the hemp and the cannabis industry and where it's going specifically in Tennessee, because I'm taking the position that it's similar to the lottery from the standpoint of the state legislature. Florida and Georgia were the ones that jumped on the lottery early and got a lot of money for their state. And we were talking about Montgomery just a few minutes ago in my office. And when I went down there, they were still debating whether to do the lottery. And I wanted to say, guys, you missed out on it. But the first state in the South that legalizes cannabis will be the gold rush state. So where are we in terms of hemp and cannabis in Tennessee? And where do you see it going? There's so much potential for hemp. And it's wild to see just in the changes that hemp has made in the past two years. I feel like the future for the country is going to be a uh, majority of the market would be a hemp market. Mm-hmm. I feel like in the next four or five years that um, the marijuana market will always be there, of course. But I think by definition, a lot of it's going to be replaced by a hemp market. From a medicinal standpoint? From a medicinal standpoint, from a regulation standpoint, from uh, there's so many pros that come into um, so Tennessee's hemp program. Now that that's signed into law, it makes Tennessee's hemp program the nation's best. So what that law does is it helps regulate the hemp side almost as strict as the marijuana side is. We're pushing for legislation that's going to regulate everything from the grow all the way to the final sale at the store. So taxes involved along the way, testing involved along the way. Every flower has to have full panel testing. Every extract made for making products has to have full panel testing. Every final product made, so once you make a brownie and you put it on the shelf, that brownie has to be tested for potency and accuracy. If it's not, then you're not in compliance, and then you know, you're know you breaking the law. So as a retailer and really a manufacturer also, you're all for more regulation, which I think the average person says, oh, these people in the industry, they don't want to be regulated, but you're really on the forefront of it. Oh, for sure. What we've been doing that just got signed into law has been our standards since 2019, Whenever we joined the Department of Ag then, um, there were you know pretty clear standards if you followed their program, but there was no enforcement of their program. It's really cool to see, hey, now here's a good standard everybody will follow. It's going to get rid of so much of the, you go to one gas station and there's a 500 milligram something and you'll buy it for 20 bucks and it does nothing. You go to another gas station and there's a 500 milligram something, you'll buy it. And then 45 minutes later, you're vomiting because it's way too strong. So Getting rid of that is like my biggest. So get some consistency yeah, in the product. Yeah. People come in all the time to our stores and it's like, I've tried this before. It didn't work. It didn't work. It didn't work. The market's getting flooded with the inferior product and people, you know, unless they've come to a store that cares about what they're doing, they don't see the real benefit. And then people come in the store, they're like, how's this here in Tennessee? This is amazing. It's like, well, it's done the right way. You know, you follow the guidelines, and you follow the rules and you can make a really, really good product in Tennessee. I want to go back a little bit to your interest in CBD and hemp. My understanding is you had an accident and it was providing some pain relief because the opioids are very addictive and you wanted something different. Talk a little bit about that if you can. Yeah, so uh, 2014 was when I had a motorcycle wreck. Messed me up real bad. Um, Glad to be alive type accident. Oh, really? So um, that was in March of 2014. And then, you know, struggled with uh, not being able to walk for a little over a year lost my right leg. So wearing a prosthetic, prosthetic fitment and the, the, the stresses and 
just the, the anxiety involved, being on pain medication this whole time. It, I just got to a point where it was like I, I couldn't function my, my anger, all that. It was just a completely different person a year later, and just something had to change. So I turned to cannabis, friend of mine, <laughs> the stoner in high school, if you would, <laughs> buddy of mine, uh, partook of some cannabis products and stuff, and then went to Colorado a few times and saw what they had to offer and just – and uh, that was really neat. And then, like I said, at the same time around 2014 or so, I had some friends that started doing growth for the CBD stuff. So it was it was all in the perfect time and how it happened. But once I got in and I kind of saw what the cannabis industry was like in a legal state and what it had to offer and the quality of what it had to offer versus what people here were making for just like, I guess what I'd consider now just bulk manufacturing of a product without more of a, a quality aspect behind mm-hmm. it, you know. So uh, I saw that there's a huge gap. So I spent the first two years or so just making stuff for myself, making stuff for friends. And I mean, I can't count how many friends are like, you've got something here, you've got something here. So then. Isn't that something to hear? Yeah. (laughs) And not to belabor your accident, but because of that, you were looking for an alternative. And you mentioned something that, you know, the accident not only changed you physically, but affected you mentally in terms of how you dealt with things. So there was a lot of anger there. Oh, for sure. So you were searching for something to make you feel better. Yeah. Overall, looking back, that was definitely the biggest frustration about it was just the, you know, here you are, <laughs> 22 years old, you can't walk again, and then go into the prosthetic place, and then, you know, you leave, and a couple hours later, you're walking around Walmart. My leg fell off twice during Walmart, so oh, <laughs> Walmart <laughs> trips. It's like, just stuff like that, it was just so frustrating. To do. Something like, just you could the, probably laugh about now, yeah, yeah. the time at had the time, to just kill you. Oh, yeah. And you're a young guy, and you're starting your life, and something tragic like that happens. And it sounds like you really took something that could knock you back a hundred steps. Oh, yeah. And you've taken it, and you've embraced it, and developed something here. And it was uh, some of that interim time, like 2016 to 2018, while I was playing around. I was going to, um, uh, going to school. I went back to Chattanooga State for like, mechanical engineering. It was a good getaway from being a kind of trap for a little while, you know, Yeah, but working from home. I did as much as I could, you know, started back the eBay store and all that stuff, just, you know, having fun with what I was doing, but um, definitely wanted to go back to school, you know, learn more. So it was a good time for experimenting and playing around and uh, learning chemistry. <laughs> so at what point did you start Snapdragon and did it start as a retail store? Or did, how did you start? I guess is the best question. So... Started online, 2016 was the first like online stuff. That was like just trying. Like I started throwing some feelers out in Facebook groups and learning the methods, learning the trade, learning the extraction process. And I was taking what I was learning and you know, using it myself and then kind of making it better. So uh, once I figured that out, it was a pretty easy transition to get on the Facebook groups and just spread what I learned and just spreading the knowledge to people and helping other people out doing what I was learning at the same time. And um, once I built like a, a recognition of Hey, this guy knows what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. The online sales come without having to really like push. It was just more of a, you know, the quality aspect spoke for itself. And then 2018, I was like, I need to go to the flea market. We need to get these local people. And I was doing some wholesale at the time. We had a few stores that would buy stuff from us, like Smokestack on Highway 58. But um, so the flea market was in 2018. That was in June of 2018 at uh, the East Ridge Flea Market over there. I did that for about a year. About six months later, I had enough. I found a spot in East Ridge. It was like $800 a month for rent. I was like, I need this spot. It's near the flea market. It's going to be great for everybody during the weekdays. And then I opened that one up, did good. And then I was like, I need a facility for making some stuff. I need a, a bigger retail spot. So I got to Hickson six months later. I built Hickson out as a lab. And then like six, eight months later after that, I was like, I need a bigger lab. So I moved the lab to a place on Lee Highway and did a full build out on Lee Highway. 
And then I moved the bakery into the Hickson store. And I was like, I'm going to bake all the edibles here and everything's good to go. And then six months later, I was like, I need the bakery in its own store. So I opened up Highway 58 and built a whole bakery out, commercial kitchen at 58. So at that point, we had three stores going. And then I was like, we need to open more stores. <laughs> so it was just a... Every six months, we got to do something, you know. And that's got to be a capital-intensive way to start, uh, building out the lab and building out the bakery and oh, everything yeah. else. Well, um, definitely six months of savings. <laughs> <laughs> so about every six months, you realize, I need to get bigger. I need to get bigger. And how many stores are you at now? Ten now. We did start some uh, franchise-type stuff last year. The most recent store, uh, the East Brainerd store, it's our most recent franchise store. So seven of them, you know, we own our own as corporate stores, and then three of them are franchise stores. Will you franchise outside the state of Tennessee, or does that depend on each state's laws? It depends so much on each state laws, and we follow so closely to Tennessee regulation. Like I said, Tennessee pushes so much more like what a traditional, you know, medical market will allow to happen in Tennessee. Uh, They're implementing a THC tax on it, so it's going to be taxed. It's, It's in theory a baby intro into some medical ways to allow certain THCs to be sold that other states don't allow, but to charge a tax on it. Is it a bit of a, to get cannabis legal, we got to first take the steps of tax and THC in the hemp products. That's it. That's it. So it's a great step towards legalization, I feel. And I feel like that's what the hemp industry has been. Like since day one, 2014 come out, all the products in 14, 15, 16 were the you know, THC free products. And then as 17, 18, 19 come around, you know, others started introducing more THC products. And then 2020 come around and Delta 8 is just THC. So it went into this transition from like, okay, this is just CBD. Okay, this is a little bit of both. Okay, cool. You can have just THC now. And then now here we are in this whole, now you can tax THC and sell, you know, regular Delta 9 THC. So explain the differences because I think people listen to have, okay, hemp and All cannabis. These things, yeah. <laughs> Delta 8 and Delta 9. Those are extractions? Yeah, they are extractions. So Delta 9 was the only controlled cannabinoids. Whenever they come out in 2014 Farm Bill and 2018 Farm Bill that helped regulate, you know, hemp, it was just regulating the natural Delta 9 THC that's extracted like a medical marijuana is, right? But uh, whenever Delta 8 was getting popular, it is still an extraction process, but it's more of a hemp-derived cannabinoid. So it's not regular Delta 9 THC. It does have THC effects to it, but... They're way less potent. They're maybe a third of the potency of like a typical. So um, Delta eight's less potent than Delta nine. It is less potent. Yeah. So and and that was kind of that that loophole that kind of mm-hmm. allowed it to get by for so many years. And then the legal states like Colorado and California and I mean there's 23 of them I believe now. Within like four or five months, banned Delta eight because you know they didn't want to loss in tax revenue since uh, hemp tax is just regular sales so tax. So that's why they banned it. Not because it was a no, product. They, they banned it yeah, because yeah. they weren't getting tax revenue yeah, on it. 100% for sure. <laughs> and the only states that have banned it are states that have a marijuana tax. THC, by the time it gets to the door, will be taxed 33% of what you're buying it for. Yeah. So that's definitely the biggest reason. But then the states that weren't legal yet, like you know the Bible Belt, they took full advantage of it. So these past couple of years, being able to go to a store or a gas station to get something that's got a THC product, it was a good entryway, but it wasn't. There's been a lot of negatives from it as far as the taking too much or whatever it may be as far as um, talking to EMTs and talking to people at ERs. In the past three years, it's went up probably 400% as far as the amount of visits or phone calls or EMT visits for uh, overconsumption of THC products. So it's getting worse, and hopefully we can take care of some of that. Expand on that a little bit in terms of how Snapdragon approaches the retail responsibility. 
in educating your clientele to where someone's just not coming in either not knowing what they're doing or underage. Sure, sure. Um, definitely the age count. Anytime somebody comes in the door, uh, you know, 21 or up, there are certain products that we sell that you don't have to be 21 for, just like the the THC free stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, childproof packaging, nothing looks like gummy bears, nothing's a teddy bear, nothing's enticing for kids and stuff like that. There's no... No Joe Camel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you'll go into some of these CBD shops and you'll see... Tony the Tiger on a cereal bar. And it's like, no, nah, you can't do that. So definitely all those problems, just as far as like, you know, keeping it out of the kid's hands. Now, of course, if you leave something around, your kid gets into it and it's like, ah, but childproof packaging so they can't open it. That'll help out, stuff like that. So trying to take all the precautions to make it look not enticing and, um, you know, in a what good about package. training your staff? Yeah, potencies and dosages on the staff stuff. So when a customer comes in, there's a lot of like information that we like to get from the customer, whether it be, is this your first time trying it? Uh, if you have tried it before, trying to figure out like what kind of dosage. And a lot of people don't know their dosage. And that's one of the most important things that having a successful experience with cannabis is knowing how much to take. Because if you take too much, you're going to have a horrible time. Right. If you don't take enough, you're not going to notice it. And then you're going to be like, this doesn't work for me. So all of our employees at all the stores are training really, really well on minimums and maximums and stuff like that for recommendations. And we usually will recommend, uh, we do a lot of like the gummies and the edibles and stuff like that. So somebody's coming in, uh, we say, hey, on your first time, just eat half of one, see how it feels. And you'll know in an hour, hour and a half or so how that kind of works. Something else cool, too, I've been working on the waters. This is game changing that we're doing. The water hits in 10 to 20 minutes. So you just drink a water and you're sipping on a water. 10 minutes later, 15 minutes later, you kind of start to feel like a little light sensation in the back of your head. So there's packaged water now with THC? And- mm-hmm. The water's super cool. Of course, you know, THC and CBD or oil. Yeah. So to have like an oil in a water soluble, that's been fun. Are the traditional beverage companies getting in the middle of that? They're not, but they're going to. So there's already been a few of the big name guys who started getting into some of the CBD type stuff. So um, it is coming for sure. I believe in the next, you know, six months or so, some of the big name guys will start doing, you know, CBD package stuff or even THC package stuff. You're extremely versed on your industry, obviously, and you build a great thing. And I do want to take this minute just to remind our listeners that if you like what you're hearing, subscribe to the podcast. We've got interesting guests like Josh all the time and would like to have you back. Josh, a couple more questions. Talk about uh, growing your staff. You've gone from selling these things online by yourself, and how many employees do you have now? Uh, 68 now. 68 employees. And that's all been over how long a period of time? Um, beginning of 2018, there was just one. By the end of 2018, I had uh, three, including myself. And then um, 2019 was the first year of growth. We went from having three at the beginning to 12 by the end of 2019. And then um, 2020 ended with 23. So you've had rapid growth. Yeah. And yeah. you obviously know the hemp industry. Did the business aspect come as quickly to you? Or did you say, you know what, I need a business manager? Yeah, that was definitely um, just like a lot of things I've struggled with in the past as far as um, delegation and management tasks and stuff. Because when I first started, I was proud I was like, I can do all this, I can do all this. And once once we got to having like 20 people, I was like, I can't do all this anymore. <laughs> so so um, it definitely was, um, I saw the vision, <laughs> I had the dream, we pushed as hard as we can. And then you got to the point where it was like, all right, all right, all right, we need HR, <laughs> we need job training, we need to hire qualified candidates, we need all this stuff. But it was definitely a, a learning journey of just uh, throwing time at it for the first little bit, for sure. 
Did you have any mentors along the way, someone that you would go to and say, you know what, I'm growing this, it's great, but gosh, I need some advice here. Along the way, of course, you know, my stepdad, he was a general manager of uh, restaurants growing up. So um, he was able to help out with some of the growing pains with some of the questions I had, you know. But overall, it was a lot of trial and error and failure along the way. Probably makes you a better businessman. Yeah, yeah. It, well, it, that's what I'm so thankful for is I've seen so many other people in the hemp industry start out with, you know, somebody will give them a million dollars and they'll think, oh, this is the way I need to do it. And then I watch them. I'm like, that's not, I can do it. that's <laughs> not the way you did that. And then like six months later, they spend it all and they're gone. So it's like, you know, I see that a lot. So I got lucky that I was able to learn just from, from the garage up. So it's like the mistakes that I made at first were easy mistakes to make. When did you know this would be your career? Because you were doing a lot of different things. And I, yeah. did, I don't think you woke up in high school and said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grow this retail hemp business. When did that light bulb go off? I know we talked about the accident and the need, but when did you go, I think I have something here? Uh, along with the friends along the way that have told me about it, but the biggest eye opener was definitely the second or third month of the flea market. You know, the amount of people that come back, it was it was a pretty quick flip of the switch. So you were seeing the same faces at the flea market coming Oh, for sure. And, and then growing each week. Oh, yeah, growing each week. So that was really exciting. And then um, the customer feedback along the way, because nothing in a negative way, but the people at the flea market helped. <laughs> that was our uh, yeah. testing people. Yeah. So it, does it work or does it not? It's a and focus then, group. It's a focus group, yeah, for sure. So <laughs> so it, it worked out really well to be able to, you know, why is your product great? Well, we've made 20 different versions of it, and everybody thinks this is the best one. Let's open some stores. <laughs> so, and where do you want to see this go? Where do you want to see Snapdragon? I'm not going to put a number of years on it, but where do you want to see it eventually go? You talked about franchising. Yeah, um, I would like to, as Tennessee's growing these next couple of years before you know full legalization happens, being able to offer what we have now as a great product and to push it into more places and get more people on board. It's really, really good to see you know how progressive uh, Chattanooga and Nashville and stuff like that are. But there's so many areas of the country that they don't have access to what we have here in Chattanooga. So I'd like to kind of, you know, spread out to every little area in Tennessee would be really, really cool. In a sense, you mentioned when cannabis is legalized, because it eventually it will be. You're pretty much set up as a turnkey for when that happens. Yeah, definitely the goal on that one. Um, and the biggest holdup and what's going to push that into the next thing is um, just the federal government just removing marijuana off of Schedule 1 controlled mm -hmm. because it doesn't, need, big deal. it doesn't need to be there. It doesn't need to. Makes no sense. Makes, it makes no sense. But it's just, you know. Explain a little bit what Schedule 1 is and yeah. why it makes no sense for cannabis to be a Schedule 1 drug. Yeah, so a Schedule 1 drug, by definition, has absolutely no medical benefit. It has an addictive trait and stuff like heroin and methamphetamine are Schedule 1 drugs being the most controlled, the most restricted, the worst drugs to have in the country. And it's on the same list as these drugs that are out here ruining. I mean, as we see as the epidemics go across the country, opioid epidemics and all this type of stuff, it's there's it's, it's horrible. So it definitely needs to be removed off that list because... Uh, and until it's off that list, there's a lot of things like banking bank, regulations. Oh gosh, banking and financing and it just checking accounts and taking merchant cards and payments. And there's so many things and every state's different. So... Um, you know, it's just, it's such a fight. It's such a fight. Yeah. Well, you've built a heck of a business here in a short time and you're a young guy too. And I'm going to hit you with the question. I always ask everyone who comes on my morning cup, but I'm not going to ask you the way I usually ask it. I usually ask, what would you tell your 25 year old self for a happy life? But think back, you've had a heck of a run here in the last 10 years. You can think back to, you know, high school or even after your accident, what do you see now is important for a happy life? Well, 
I can enjoy it. And I can appreciate it because it's what led me up to here. But as far as some of that focus and, and dedication or whatnot, um, definitely, definitely don't forget to take time for yourself every now and then. I didn't do that for the first couple of years, but it was, uh, you know, it was the grind to get where we're at. Uh, also, too, uh, I've built something up and grown something and then decided to move into something completely different as the next step. And oftentimes, because for the sake of time, abandoning what I did before. So um, I would say if you start something up, look for ways to distribute that load to somebody else so you don't just drop it and get rid of it. That's probably one of the biggest things because some of the stuff like the eBay store, the Amazon stores, Mm -hmm. some of the different things that I've done over the years, just with me being the only one up until 2018 when I hired some folks, if time didn't allow for it, you know, school and college and work in the flea market, you know, I was dropping things off to pick up other things. So that's probably the biggest thing. But doing those things sets you up for where you are today, understanding how retail works on the web and having that knowledge and being able to utilize that. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned take time for yourself. How would you, uh, how would you look back on that in terms of, yes, you got the daily grind, but how do you separate that and take time for yourself? That was one of the things I struggled with probably the most was separating. You know, uh, I'd be at the store working until, you know, eight o'clock or so. And when I get off work, when I go home, I'm sitting on the computer, finishing up work. And then I do a lot of imports from manufacturing places across the country or across the world, really, even. So a lot of the nighttime has been talking to people in other countries and stuff. Cause it, so you're never turning it off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The never turning it off thing. So I've gotten better about setting off times to, t- to turn it off. But it took up until this past year to figure that out. Yeah, so it's I, important to do. I've been way less stressed. Everything's working so much smoother. Communications are so much better. So it's... Uh, yeah, turn it off every now and then. That's my only recommendation. I can give somebody that's you know, working hard or whatnot, you know? Well, it's great advice. You got to be able to disconnect. You can't work 24-7 or you burn yourself out. For sure. Josh, you got a great story. I appreciate you coming on My Morning Cup. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.